This is Black Girls Love True Crime, a true crime podcast told from the perspective of a Black girl. Hey people, welcome to another episode of Black Girls Love True Crime. It's your host, T. Welcome. I hope you've been doing well since the last time you listened to my voice. Um, And I hope you've been safe and you've been staying healthy. I'm excited to be back recording another episode um, and it's always nice. I mean, I feel like every time I start this episode, I always have to just kind of say, oh, it's been really nice um, because I'm still trying to get, you know, my groove and trying to get comfortable. And I feel like I'm getting getting into some type of rhythm here and, I, and I'm excited to be recording another episode. So let's get into it. So today we are in Kenya. I love Kenya. I don't know that I've done any episode on Kenya yet. Um, But I'm excited to be in Kenya today. Um, Kenya is also one of those countries that like I just cannot wait till I visit. I know that I'm going to visit Kenya. Um, I've just heard so many good things about it. And like I said the last time, I always want to start my episodes now with sharing some fun fact about about countries in Africa. Like one of my aims or one of my goals for this podcast, even though it is a podcast that is, um, you know, true crime themed uh it is a podcast like true crime themed but it's also focused on africa and whatever i do i always want to shed light on 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 that beautiful continent so whatever way that i can do that i want to do that and incorporate and infuse that into all of these episodes so like i said the last i'm always going to start the episodes with a um you know with some fun facts about the countries that i'm talking about so we're in kenya today kenya is a country in east africa it's actually one of the most um, well-known countries in africa Um, i think that one of people who are unfamiliar with africa as a continent usually think of africa and they think of safaris and they think that like anywhere you go to in africa is a great place for a safari well i'm from nigeria and i've never been um, on a safari before but Kenya is actually um, one of the best places for a safari. So when I do visit Kenya, I definitely will go on a safari. Um, another huge um, kind of like fun fact about Kenya is that coffee is actually a huge expert in Kenya. Um, but most Kenyans apparently drink tea over coffee. Um, but coffee is actually one of their biggest experts, exports. Um, there's also one thing that I found out about Kenya that is pretty cool is that Kenya has a car-free island. Um, it's called Lamu Island, which seems really, really cool. I would love to visit this. My sister was just telling me she visited um, Mexico a few weeks ago, and she said she went um, to a car-free island where she had to, like, drive um, a go-kart into the island. And, like, on the island, people just drive go-karts around um well i mean obviously you just took a ferry to the island but that while you're on the island you only drive go-karts around and you can't drive any cars and i think that that's really cool so lamu island in kenya um also is a car free island so to get around residents would walk they would take a boat or they would use donkeys to transport items cars are banned banned for the general public um, and they are in roads that can even accommodate vehicles. I think that's really, really cool um, about Kenya. 
there are two official languages of Kenya. It's English and then it's Swahili. Um, Swahili is also one of those languages that I was reading. I feel like a lot of the, I mean, there are a lot of African languages that are, I think are pretty and, you know, everyone has different opinions on that. I think there are a lot of pretty African languages. Um, I'm Nigerian. I personally am of Yoruba. Um, I speak Yoruba language. I don't think Yoruba is the prettiest language personally. Um, and everyone, anyone can differ and they can beg to differ on that. I don't think Yoruba is one of the prettiest, prettier languages, but I think Swahili is very pretty. And I think it's one of like the languages of romance apparently. Um, and then, so Kenya, they speak Swahili and they also speak English. And then also, I think this is something that most people probably know that Kenyans have won a lot in the Olympics. So apparently, um, <laughs> um, no Kenyan has ever won a medal in a winter sport at the Olympics. However, they've won over 100 medals, mo mostly in track and field. And that's one thing that I've always known, that uh, marathons, call a Kenyan in there and they're going to win you your marathon. They're really, really good runners. They're good in track and fields. Um, distance running, as, as far as I know, Kenyans are really good. So those are some fun, fun facts about Kenya that I just thought was really nice to kind of just start off the episode. That's how I want to start, kind of like shed light on an African country before I then start talking about like true crime in these countries. I think that it's really um, just a positive light to start my podcast moving forward so um this episode um i think it's going to be really really fun i found a really really nice um story to share um and it's actually going to be quite long so i I think it's going to be a two-parter. I think I'm going to break this into two, to be quite honest, maybe even three episodes, but I'm so excited to share this episode um, with you guys. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And so the way that we're going to start at least this episode, I'm going to start off talking about a woman and then um, a woman's story and unfortunately how she went missing and was subsequently, well, we'll talk about her and then we'll end up obviously talking about the person that was convicted of her crime and then talk a little bit about his story and but my point is that I um came into this website that gave me so much information and there's just so much I really just wanted to share as much as I can about this I think it's really going to be cool to um share this story in the way that it was presented it's this website called unresolved.me um and I, I'm like, yo, how have I never found this before? But I found it and I think it's going to be cool. But there's so much information that I definitely cannot get through this in one episode. It's going to be like a hour and a half episode and we're not doing that. Um, so anyway, let's get into it. So um, let's start off. So Catherine um, Chalangat was a 32-year-old mother of one. And in 2008... Um, Catherine Chilanga disappeared. She had just finished college um, and she lived in a suburb of Nairobi called Karen or Karen, I think Karen, where she had several family members that lived near her. 
Um, and so the day that she disappeared was a Sunday. It seemed like every normal Sunday, nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. Um, the last relative that saw her alive was someone called Wesley. I don't know how he was related to her, but it was one of her relatives. His name was Wesley Rotich. And, um, he was the last one that saw her alive, um, as she left his home in the, in the early evening. So it was Sunday. She left around 9 PM. She said that she was going to spend the night at her brother's house. So, um, she left and everything seemed to be good. And then she never arrived at the brother's house. So of course, worried family members are trying to locate her, trying to retrace, retrace their steps. Um, and this was going on for like the next few days. And then that went into weeks that ended up going into months and they never found anything about her. So this is when um, the, the the family member who saw her last, um, Wesley Rotich, um, he ended up describing what happened next. Apparently, he heard nothing. He, he said that they hadn't heard anything for like three months. And then he ended up getting a call from people who were supposedly her captors. They called and then they demanded that they provide 30,000 shillings. And um, when they were saying that, like, and so apparently, you know, they said they didn't have the money, like they don't have that much money. So they reported this incident to the police at, um, you know, Karen, which is or Karen, which is where they lived. And this extortion, this this attempt to extort them came, like I said, three months after the disappearance. And since they didn't have any money, they tried to beg for time um, to see if they could, you know, come up with the money. Um, and so the but it seemed like the people who were asking for this weren't giving them any pity. They weren't trying to, you know, negotiate or bring the money down at all. They ended up saying that they were going to allow them to pay less. And so they ended up t- accepting 15,000 to so half of the 30,000 shillings that they had originally um, asked them for. They transferred the money to them, but sadly, this didn't result, of course, in the safe return of Catherine. Um, because by the time that this happened, the young mother had already died. She had apparently even been killed months before they had requested for this money to be sent to them. Um, and so they, they, she had been killed um, months before, apparently, by a, by a killer who worked just down the, bro- the block from the family, is what they said. So he was a security guard who worked at a local um, water utility office building, which was less than 50 meters from the home where Catherine had last been seen. Um, he would later claim to have encountered the woman walking across the road when he approached her and he held out um, an open hand. He said that she was just walking along the road. Um, He said he just shook her hand and she followed him. So essentially, he's claiming that he didn't do anything for her to follow him. All he had to do was just stretch out his hand and give her a shake and she follows him. And so what we would now talk about is who this killer was and how he would later become known as Kenyan's most or Kenya's most infamous serial killer who claimed to have a special ability. Um, he told 
police that he had a magic touch and that he was able to lure, lure, lure women away f- to private locations where he would murder them um, before drinking some of their blood. Your issue is about to get really crazy, you guys, okay? And apparently, he claimed that their blood filled some of this supernatural powers that he had. And if you guys recall, this is where I said that um, when we talk about true crime in Africa, there is no way that we're not going to talk about like supernatural powers and supernatural forces. Because as a continent, there is a lot of like, um, you know, yeah, there's just a lot of power. There's a lot of belief in supernatural forces. And so a lot of crime that is committed is rooted in like supernatural powers. And so I think that this is the first time that I'm outrightly talking about a story that focuses on that. So this guy essentially says that him drinking the blood of his victims is what gives him this supernatural powers or is what makes him stronger. He says that he feels the super the, the powers that he has and then that inspires him to kill again. And so, unfortunately, the body of Catherine um, Chalenget would not be found for over two years, during which the killer continued to kill women and children, and ultimately um, amassing almost two dozen victims over the span of a half a decade. Um, And he claimed that all of these were sacrificed as part of a cult ritual. Um, that he had been forced to get into against his will. So who is this killer? This is the story of Philip Onyacha. That's his name, Philip Onyacha. So that's who we're talking about today. So let's talk a little bit about Philip. Let's talk about this guy who apparently had the magic touch. (laughs) So Philip Ondari Onyacha was born in Western Kenya in 1978. Um, he was just one of several children to his parents. Um, and so I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm going through this and I want to try to give as much information because like I said, there's so much information here, but I also don't want to just talk to you guys and give you unnecessary information. But, um, so Philip was, he, he claimed, he later claims that his childhood was, you know, like he suffered a lot of horrific incidents while he was a child He claims that he was molested by a worker at his family home and that this happened a handful of times and this left him traumatized. He also says that that damaged his psyche and made him believe that he could do anything he wanted if if he used force. And I think that a lot of times when I talk about this um, serial killers, and like I said, I've said this several times, when I give some background, um, when I give some history about them or some family like yeah like their family history a lot of time we see that there's it's there's a lot of like you know trauma be it physical trauma or sexual trauma that they've experienced when they were young and you know whenever i say that it's not in an attempt to like excuse their behavior or to justify what they've done but it is to provide some context of okay this these are the things that led up to this person becoming who they are you know what i mean um and it's just it is just what it is so so philip says that that's the way that he thought um he says that this eventually this apparently led him to watching and looking at a lot of pornography which caused him to have significant struggles with his own sexuality once again there are a lot of people who are not abused and watch a lot of porn but um 
you know, I also I also know that um, as someone who is African, that there's sometimes where, you know, a lot of times people don't talk about, you know, sex or, yeah, people, a lot of parents don't talk to kids about sex at all. And so when you even have any thoughts about sex or if you're watching porn at an age where a lot of young boys and young girls are watching porn, you end up thinking that there's something wrong with you. And so for him, you know, maybe he then starts to associate the fact that he experienced some sexual abuse to the fact that he's to connecting it to the reason that he's watching porn, if that makes sense, which is not necessarily the case. So um, anyway, all of this, um, um, while all of this was unfolding behind the scenes, while all this is happening, he apparently seemed to have a lot of promise in primary school. Um, he did pretty well. He earned good grades in school. Um, teachers seemed to think that he was a well-behaved boy whose ability, like he was, he was an above-average um, um, student. So he was admitted to a high school, um, and you know, um, and apparently actually got into one of the best high schools um, in Kenya, um, and so let's see so he was and he was able to get through it pretty well which kind of set him on the path to going on to university um while he was in high school the same thing he kind of had the reputation of being a pretty promising young student he showed enthusiasm um not only in his academics but also in extracurricular activities he seemed to enjoy himself um and so one of his teachers um someone called Mercy Terimo, his English teacher said about him, he was an eloquent, bright, young student who spoke with a lot of authority and excelled in his studies. Wow, that sounds very, very, um, sounds like a promising young man. That's, that's exactly what it sounded like. Um, but of course, going into his second year of school, though, there seemed to be a lot of little trouble coming along um, along the way. And so um, some of the troublesome behavior started to kind of show up when he was apparently in his second year. Um, and so let's see. Entering into his second, second year, um, it seemed like he began to um, kind of like, I guess he seemed to... take out some of, I guess, his anger or whatever on some vulnerable classmates is what it says. Um, and at this point, people started to see like a behavior shift. Um, I think his math teacher said that like when he arrived in the school initially, he was a very dedicated student who led his class for several terms. And I think that means he was at the top of his class. But when he got to form two, he appeared to have lost like some of what he some of kind of like that vigor that he had. He started bullying students. Um, and then, you know, oh God, okay. So then it later would be learned that Philip wasn't just accused of bullying. Rather, he had been accused by one form one student. So this is like he was informed too. So uh, a younger kid, a younger boy, he had been accused of sodomy. This is when you know issue. Like he's, he, this is big trouble. So it's hard to say how valid the accusi accusi accusations were um, because 
apparently this was only discovered at a later interview um but when you kind of see what people had been saying about him in the past they had only been using the black blanket term bullying like bullying comes in a bunch of different ways man you know because you see people who bully if you you know maybe you call someone a name maybe you know but if you're doing some ish like this this is this is psychotic behavior right here um and it seems like, you know, they didn't really investigate anything when there was bullying. I think they gave him, like, some kind of two-week suspension, but then he ended up going back to school. Um, and teachers just were just complaining about him kind of, like, spiral spiraling into negative behaviors. But it's really hard to tell, you know, um, how... I don't think people understood how badly his behavior was becoming... And so over the next couple of years, the school continued to express issues with him. His behaviors, um, his behavioral issues became more apparent and he lost his quote unquote formerly calm and collected demeanor. Um, he seemed to be more twitchy, <laughs> twitchy. It's, this is like a more quick to anger, apparently. Um, and so it is also worth noting that this is around the point that he um, started to come to the end of his secondary education. Um, and so the school itself was, this is so, so this is like I said, the school itself was starting to receive some whispers of some kind of devil worship. Um, and so, man, and so... Apparently, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to read to this. Um, apparently, f former students and school officials would remark on this later on, like years later, obviously, when, pe when people had figured out who, who Philip was. But there was nothing to this rumors like of, of, of devil worshipping. Um, people say he just was a disgruntled child or a dis disgruntled kid that was waiting to graduate. So when he was in his last year, he sat for the KCSEs, which is the Kenyan Certificate of Secondary Education. Um, he ended up graduating with a GPA that was equivalent to a C minus, but he never collected his certificate. Um, apparently, he just like graduated, but never picked up his certificate. He just was like deuces. <laughs> um, and then, um, so after he graduated, he didn't decide to go on to um instead of I, I guess most people just assumed he was going to continue to go on to university or to college but he just decided to enter the workforce and eventually become a security guard um and so at this point he lived in a village near his family's farm but he would eventually move back to Inyeri, which is the same city where he had gone to secondary school years years earlier um, um it would later be learned that Philip was forced out of the family's village when he was accused of attempting to rape a neighbor. And so he moved back to the only other region where he was familiar with, my Lord. Um, so he says that this wasn't true, that the only reason that he moved back was because he was hearing voices. So this is also one of those things. Um, so this is apparently he says voices that he has been hearing since high school who had been growing in volume and intensity and were encouraging him to make rash decisions, including the decision to kill. So this is where, you know, you start to think about, you know, was there 
um, a level of maybe schizophrenia that just was never diagnosed. And I do know that like as someone who is passionate about mental health and, um, you know, and also someone who was born and raised in Africa and is very invested in, you know, the continent of Africa. I know in Nigeria, and I think I can speak for many African countries, there is definitely not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of um, attention that is paid to mental health at all. There's a lot of people who go undiagnosed. Um, so a lot of times you hear, when I was younger, I would always hear people who are on the street you see people are on the street who are, I mean, which we see here, to be quite honest, even in the U.S., but you see people who are on the street, they're homeless, they are, um, you know, and, and when we're younger, you, we just used to say, oh, they're mad, they're mad, they're mad. But those are people who are experiencing, you know, um, they have mental health issues and they just haven't been properly diagnosed or they aren't taking care of, you know, they they haven't been taken care of um, to try to kind of put their mental health issues at bay. And so things like this are things that, you know, people would say and they'll just be like, oh, he's a crazy person and no one addresses it. But um, so let's go back to Philip. Um, so eventually Philip got married to a young woman who is named Lydia um, in the mid-2000s following his move um, they got married and then they moved to Nairobi um, and they lived in a small one-bedroom house along with a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law and two children. One of the children was Phillips and Lydia's, a son that was born in 2008. Oh man, I don't even know how this child, whenever, you know, it's always so sad. Um, a lot of times when I hear things about, you know, people who, you know, end up becoming like a per- you know, infamous, you know, serial killer, someone who commits all of this really terrible, horrific crimes. I wonder how their family members, you know, internalize this type of thing, what kind of guilt they feel or how they just feel being related to someone who does something so gruesome. But anyway, he had a son who was um, born in 2008 when the child was still an infant. Um, apparently, Lydia, and this is another thing, Lydia, Philip's wife, started to grow suspicious of his behavior. She had known him as a kind and compassionate man, but he started to spend odd hours out and about, um, staying out at night and hanging out with um, people that she didn't know, un- unknown acquaintances. And so and eventually in 2009, she even called him out on it, like saying like, what's going on? And she had told later, later told reporters that she actually assumed that he had another wife and even asked him to let her go if that was the case. Um, and this is another thing, you know, when you hear things like this, at what point do you, I mean, it seems like she didn't have any suspicions of him before they got married, but at some point she did start to think that this guy is a little bit odd. So despite her fears, she stuck with Philip and he insisted that there was nothing wrong. And he said that he remained committed to Lydia and their son, and he continued to provide for his young family. Outside of home, apparently his neighbors and his acquaintances saw him as a fairly normal guy, seemingly normal. He um, randomly did strange things, but I guess we all randomly do strange things. Um, But neighbors say that they barely spoke to Philip, if at all. 
Um, and if they did, they said that he seemed odd. He would say weird things and lash out in certain ways, like turning off the main power breaker to the entire neighborhood. That's freaking weird. And that's actually really annoying. Um, and so when a neighbor complained about this type of erratic behavior, he responded by threatening to hire someone to kill them. Oh my God. Like, so this type of ish that is very, very scary, especially and I'm not speaking, I'm not saying this about like Kenya necessarily, but in a lot of like, um, you know, um, developing countries where our justice system and I use, I'm not trying to say that, you know, that quote unquote, you know, first world countries have justice systems that are so, you know, great and favor the general public because we know that that's not the case. But there is some law and order, for instance, for someone that lives um, in the Western world, where if you are experiencing something like a neighbor who is terrorizing you or, you know, turning off like the power to the entire neighborhood, you can call the cops and, you know, say, hey, this person is acting out. But in a place like this, we don't really not usually are you able to get that type of luxury to do that. Um. But like if someone says, I'm going to hire someone to kill you, like that is a threat that you can call, call the cops about. Um, but apparently, you know, I don't think he responded to and he was going to hire someone to kill a neighbor. And I, it seems like no one called any cops about it. When he did more unusual, annoying neighbor stuff, such as playing his, you know, music really loud at night no one complained or questioned him because they were afraid of him responding by sending someone to kill them i'm sure <laughs> um and so many just kind of like assumed that his odd behavior was based on him living in a small environment with no real room to breathe and let's be honest that actually can be quite tiring um if you're living in a small space um and so other people um noted that a small growth was visible on the back of his head yo i love this website because i i have to read a little bit more about this website because this website has such in-depth information um and it's really interesting to be able to hear the progression of this guy um the fact that people this is also like a you know like a story that is growing so there's been a lot of research um but the fact that someone noticed like a tumor slow slowly growing in the back of his neck and you know, people are able to kind of put potentially attribute that to his behavior changing. That's pretty um, intense. So going into 2010, um, this was the year that he turned 32 years old. He was still working um, as a security person. However, over the first few months of the year, his attendance started to become spotty. Um, and so people noted that he would be absent or he would go missing, um, on multiple occasions. And, um, he hadn't expressed any other type of weird behaviors be, be during his years as a security person. Um, and so, but of course, like if you just all of a sudden start sh showing, like not showing up to work, your employer cannot come, like just ignore that. And so obviously the employer ended up firing him in March of 2010 and so um and so and so let's see let's see let's see so they fired him so I'm trying to go and see where um and so so let's go back so 
trying to go back to the story that we started that we started with. Um, so usually, when a killer, um, when a when a killer strikes, they usually lash out um, close to home. Um, most investigators start to investigate, you know, like the family. Obviously, we always know this. Like, if usually when a woman, when there is like a woman goes missing or a woman is found dead, you start off with like her boyfriend, her husband, something like that. Um, and so when it becomes that, you know, maybe these crimes have not been committed by someone who is close to that victim, then you have to start to broaden your search. And so in June of 2020, around the time that um, Philip's wife started to, f- you know, feel like there was something off about him, um, that she didn't know what was missing, a boy in Nairobi went missing. That boy's name was called Samuel Wonyoyi. Um, and he was a lot like Philip had been in his youth. He was enthusiastic about his education. In fact, he had moved to Nairobi to live with his aunt because he was attending a prestigious school in the region. But only after three months, he went missing and he was gone for about three days before he, um, and, and three days. And then a note was left, um, at his auntie's doorstep. Um, asking for 40,000 shillings to be sent to a phone number um, through like a money transfer program. Does that sound familiar? Of course, it sounds familiar to Catherine's story. And she had disappeared in 2008. So this was a year prior to Samuel's disappearance. Um, The family of Samuel refused to pay the ransom because they simply didn't even have the money. And then the second letter came um, in their came to their home and some of the items of Samuel's clothing which he had been wearing when he went missing came with the letter um this time the price had reduced to 10,000 this is just terrible these people are just trying to get any money still the family couldn't or they wouldn't pay it so after that the letter stopped arriving so did the harassing phone calls which had been tormenting the family into paying a ransom for a family that they believed were already dead so all this while, Philip is, um, had been helping out with the neighborhood searches for Samuel, offering to help with the large mobs of volunteers looking for the boy. He even told the family of the victim that the handwriting on the handwritten letters looked like that of a female, which we know now was an attempt to remove himself from suspicion. Yo, this guy. Um, and so in 2010, um, in the in in a city called Thika, which is about an hour north of Nairobi, um, there was also an uptick in the amount of violent deaths. Um, and so, in particular, eights, um, eight um, sex workers were killed in over a span of a year. Um, but a couple of high profile de- high-profile deaths early on put this industrial city on high alert. So in January 2010, the body of a sex worker named um, Helen Inambura was found in a room at a restaurant. Um, And so initially, um, police thought that she had died of epileptic shock before learning um, what actually had happened to her. Uh, And so just... A couple, just about a week later, a similar crime happened again in a separate area of Thika. 
um 25 year old jacqueline wambai met up with a client before heading to um a lodging house which is like a low-scale motel which mostly which is mostly known for sex work there she also was found dead the next day naked and her neck was broken throughout all eight of these murders police struggled to identify any leads they weren't able to find anything and the deaths remained unsolved for the foreseeable foreseeable future um there's so much information there's so much information um in 2010 a nine-year-old boy another nine-year-old boy anthony moriri went missing from his family's neighborhood which is um in a place called dagoriti a west suburb of nairobi um following his disappearance weeks passed without any word but then just prior just like the prior kidnappings there was a note that arrived for his family again um and they were the note demanded an amount to be paid in ransom for the safe return of their nine-year-old boy anthony unlike the prior victims um this family were actually able to pay and they followed the instructions which told them to send the money through mpesa which is this money transfer system um and it provided a mobile number for them to send the money to however um unbeknownst to the kidnapper the money was being tracked through the program by the police it wasn't until the first week of 2010 nearly two months after anthony's disappearance that his family would learn that of course like the prior victims this boy was already dead and his body had been found fully decomposed meaning that he had likely been killed just shortly after he went missing which was way before they were even asking for um the ransom and um so the fa- the family finally had an answer and they knew what had happened to their young son this was because the police had the culprit in custody 32 year old philip onyacha who within a day had confessed to killing nearly 20 people nearly 20 people um and so <laughs> on june 5th of um 2010 Philip was arrested by the police after all of this evidence. Multiple evidence had put him in the sight of a recent abduction. Um, and so, let's see. So, following his arrest, like I said, he confessed to killing nearly 20 people. Um, the number varies based on, like, the publication. Um, but most of the people that he killed were women and children who he described as being weak and vulnerable to his attacks. And in his confessions, which um, he describes, he describes how the crimes had escalated over the years, originating from the time he was in high school. He claimed that his first year in high school, a female teacher had recruited him into a murderous cult and that once he was initiated into the cult, he was responsible for killing 100 people at which point he would be blessed with an untold amount of riches. This is insane. This is like completely insane. And so as part of the cult practices, however, he had to engage in practices that were deemed barbaric. Um, And so after killing each of his victims, he described drinking blood from their bodies, usually from their neck. This is like um, a legit 
legit vampire like drinking blood from his victims necks like this is a legit vampire behavior um do you know what i think that that is actually a good place to just kind of take a break let's just let's just end this episode with this guy who apparently had been recruited to join a cult since he was in high school the cult needed him to kill a hundred people and then he was going to be um rewarded he was going to be rewarded for killing a hundred people and for him to kill these people he had to literally kill them and drink blood from their necks that is insane but i think that that is actually a good place to end this episode we are going to i feel like you know kind of hearing a little bit a little bit about his childhood hearing his home life and then hearing you know about these victims and then you know next week we're going to talk a little bit more about you know what his thoughts were maybe a little bit more about what his wife thought and then we're also going to hear about what the media um you know what the media thought um or how the media talked about you know these killings and maybe i think there's also some more about this person who recruited him or a teacher who recruited him um when he was in high school uh so thank you so much for listening to this episode um i really enjoy the fact that there's so much information on this it's actually cool having this much material to be able to go through um about one of the serial killers but thank you for listening to stories by t um, i'm so sorry thank you for listening to black girls love true crime um and i will talk to you all next time deuces